you don't have a Bible with you this morning, <clears throat> we're going to uh, be on page 865 in the Pew Bibles, continuing our study of Matthew. This is a big book. This is, this is uh, week 41 in Matthew. We've taken some breaks, done some other things, but uh, we're plugging away. One of the things that it's important to remember, and, and we lose sight of this when we go passage by passage through a book, is that this is not how it would have been received by its first hearers. Specifically, Jesus is just having a conversation with some people. Right? He's not like saying three lines and then everybody goes back and like picks it apart for a week and then comes back and he says three more lines and everybody picks it apart. That's not how it went. He's just having a uh, confrontation specifically with the Pharisees and he's going just straight through. And, and we kind of lose sight of the fact that this is one piece of text. And what Matthew is doing is he's arranging these stories in a very specific way and in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 to illustrate how people are responding to Jesus. Jesus is going around the north of Israel and he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and he's saying, repent, and he's, he's doing miracles and he's loving people and in these radical ways. And Matthew records some things that where people are just like, some of them are like, this is really awesome, Jesus is super cool. And other people are like, I don't know about this Jesus guy. And then the Pharisees are like, I think we're going to kill him. And, and so there's all of these little vignettes of how Jesus is being responded to. And we've been in the middle of this one with the Pharisees for a couple of weeks where the disciples are there and the crowds are looking in, but the Pharisees are really the combatants in this um, conversation. Last week, we took a look at the verses uh, 22 through 32. And Jesus, Jesus gave us a choice. He said, if you're not with me, you're against me. And he, we talked about this thing that we call the unpardonable sin. And have we committed it? The answer is no. It's this idea that everything about Jesus that I can see, I can see that he's real, I can see that he's true, and I don't want that. And there's nothing left for you if you say, I don't want that. If you recognize the power and the truth of the gospel in Christ and you say, too bad, it's not for me, then there's no other savior. N.T. Wright, I, I quoted him last week, and he said, if you've decided that the only bottle of water that's left is poison, then you've condemned yourself to die of thirst. There's no other option. And this is what Jesus is saying, and last week we talked at length about this, and, but he's continuing to talk to the Pharisees who have made this decision. They have seen his power, and they can't deny it, and so they say, well, he's working for the devil. And we talked about how that was a silly thing for them to say, but, but they can't deny his power, but they have to get around it because he's a threat to their own power, to their own leadership of the country, and they don't like that, and so they have to reject him. And Jesus says, there's, there's nothing left for you if you reject the only gift that there is. So Jesus is still talking here in verse 33, and he's going to talk, he's going to bring up the judgment. This is a popular topic in church, judgment. <laughs> but let's, we're going we're gonna to look at three different ways that, that Jesus brings up the judgment today, and he's going to talk about how we are to think of our being something. And then he's going to talk about how we should be turning from something, and he's going to talk about how we should be learning 
something. And so those are the three kind of headings that I have for the message this morning, being, turning, and learning. And so let's take a look at verse 33. Jesus has just told the Pharisees that if, if you don't accept me, there's nothing left for you. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So Jesus says the, the word make here, and it's kind of a weird thing. Um, it's, it's, it's not commanding us, go out and make a tree good. It's not what he's saying. He's, he's more like, it's, it's like, enter into this thought experiment with me. Say there's a good tree. Its fruit will be good. Say there's a bad tree. Its fruit will be bad. And he brings up a couple things. He brings up, he brings up trees. He brings up fruit, goodness, badness. And then he throws in snakes. Does anybody, can anybody think of a story in the Bible that has to do with those things? Anybody, does it strike you as familiar? I think what Jesus is, is trying to get us to start thinking about immediately, and I think his first hearers would have thought this as well, is, oh, this is a Garden of Eden story. This is a, this is a Genesis chapter 2 and 3 story, and so much of the Bible uh, telegraphs back to this story in Genesis, because this is where our first parents had the opportunity to walk with God. To, they were given this calling to rule and reign and fill the earth and subdue it and be kings and queens, co-heirs, co-rulers with God on the earth if they would just follow him. And then this snake shows up, this serpent shows up and, and see, sows this seed of doubt in their mind. And, you know, you can be wise apart from God. You don't have to listen to God. You can make your own way on your own. And they take the bait and they, they eat from this tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they're banished from the garden because they've chosen to go away from the wisdom of God and follow their own. And so I think this is what we're supposed to have in our minds when Jesus starts talking about this. This is, a, this is an issue of what kind of a person are you? Are you a person that that follows the Lord, or are you a person that goes your own way? Good trees produce good fruit. The outside comes from a good inside, and bad trees produce bad fruit. The outside comes from a bad inside. And you will know a tree by its fruit. And then in verse 34, he calls the Pharisees brood of vipers, children of snakes, That's mean, right? <laughs> like, but I love it because they just got done saying, you know why you have power, Jesus? You're working for the devil. And Jesus goes, no, actually, you are children of the devil. You have abandoned God and fully allowed yourselves to be consumed by his enemy. You can't speak good things because you are evil, And then he says, I tell you on the, that on the day of judgment, this is our first day of judgment today, 
People will have to account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Careless is an interesting translation. It's probably better to say worthless, um, because the context of the passage is important. He's talking to the Pharisees about the words that they speak, and what's the last word that they spoke? It comes from verse 34, or 24, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And so as a, that, that wouldn't have just slipped out. They didn't just like accidentally say that. They planned that. And so it wasn't careless in the sense of, oopsie, I, I, I didn't mean that. It was, it's careless, it's worthless in the sense is that it doesn't have any value. And Jesus says, the things that come out of your mouth are a window into what's inside of you. Your outside is an expression of your inside. And it's really easy to go down this, this, this path this morning as we, as we read this to be like, oh man, I've said some things that I'm not happy about. I've said some things that I'm not proud of. To be judged by my words, like, I don't... I don't really want to do that. I don't want, that doesn't sound like fun to me. <laughs> like, I don't know about you. Like, do, can you think of any of the words that you've said that you're like, I really don't want God to make a determination about my soul based on those words. So what is Jesus talking about? He's, he's tying in this tree metaphor. And I think that's really important because the tree is good on the inside. And then what comes out of the tree is good because of what's on the inside. And all around Scripture, we see this metaphor of trees that are good. I'm going to read you a couple passages here. This is Psalm 1. This is the very first song in Israel's songbook. I can get there. Psalm 1 says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the instruction of the Lord and and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. See, the, the metaphor of the tree here is that It's planted in something good. His delight is in the Lord's instruction. The the good person in Psalm 1 is not one who's just like so outwardly generous or so kind to strangers or so morally upright on the outside. Those things are probably true, but the source of this person's goodness, the source of this person's acceptance, acceptance before God comes from his relationship to the Lord. He delights in the Lord's instruction. Turn, if you can, to Psalm 92. We see this again. Verse 12. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare the Lord is just, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. 
See, once again, the psalmist praises the good fruit of this person, but accounts for the good fruit by the relationship that they have with the Lord. He is my rock. And we'll do one more just for fun. This is Jesus in John 15. Slightly different, but an agricultural metaphor. He says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So the the scary part of Jesus' words here, as he's speaking to these Pharisees who have completely walked away, who have completely decided that Jesus is the enemy, is that you will have to give an account for the words that you speak. But then we also see that Jesus himself says, the the things that come out of you, they're going to be things that I bring out of you if you abide in me. If your inside is filled with Christ, then your outside is good. What seems to be on the surface about external conformity to a list of rules or a list of practices is really about eternal, internal trust. Do you trust Christ? What is your state of being? See, Jesus can easily judge these men by their wicked words. We don't have that ability typically, so don't try it. (laughs) Don't be condemned by this text. Don't be afraid that while my words aren't always good, but let it search you. Let Let it probe you. Let it ask questions of your heart. What does come out of your mouth? Does that come, if you've been born again, if you are following Christ, does that come from the Holy Spirit inside of you? Or not. I have a a friend that I that, that I used to work with, and I used to be super sarcastic. And then I got married, and I I, I hurt my wife <laughs> often, and so she's helped me get over that. Um, and so lots of lots of lots of help through marriage working on my sarcasm but but it still comes out from time to time and and I have a friend at work who uh, in a previous job and I would I would just say hurtful things that I thought were really funny. And she would go, "Man, that that's really hurtful." And I'd say, "Oh, I'm just joking." And she said, "Oh, but there's always something in a joke that's real." And I thought, "Oh man, I'm a terrible person." <laughs> Because I think usually that's true. We don't joke about things that we don't have a little bit of reality connected to. Sometimes you run, you run guys are really bad at this. Guys are jerks. But like, like, they'll say something like, you know, a group of guys will get together and they'll say like, sarcasm is our love language. And they just berate each other and put each other down and everybody laughs and stuff. But, but is, it, is that really what we should be about. What comes out of you? Is that coming from the Spirit of God? And I don't want to be like, no joking. It's like, (laughs) Christians don't joke. 
But it, this text should ask that question of our hearts. Like, what, what is really coming out of our mouths? And if we're going to stand before Jesus and be judged by that, and thankfully, if, if we're in Christ, we're judged by the finished work of Christ, right? We're judged by Jesus' words. But if we were to have to give an account for all of the words that we speak, what's coming out of our mouths? Verse 38 says, And then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so Jesus just gets done saying, The words that you speak are going to judge you. And this leads right up to their question. Hey, we want to see a sign. And then Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Like, he's just mad, right? Like, he's not putting up with anything from them. And you think, well, why are you got to be so mean, Jesus? I mean, isn't that a reasonable request? But see, their question is insincere because we've just got done like looking at Jesus give signs, right? He, he heals a man with a, 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 a shriveled up hand and then he heals a whole bunch of people and then he casts out a demon from a man and allows him to speak and see. So he's given signs all over the place. They don't really want a sign. They don't really care. And Jesus is, is harsh towards the Pharisees. But I think it's because they want to kill him. Like in verse 14 of this chapter, but the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew and they followed him. So imagine like, like so let's say I would like to kill you. You've got a, we've got a mutual friend and they were like, hey, man, I saw Zach at Cabela's, and he was buying shotgun shells, and he was muttering under his breath. And he was like, I just got to get him alone, and I don't find a time. And then you saw me at church, and I was like, hey, what are your plans after church today? Why? None of your business, right? Like, it's in other circumstances, it's a normal question. But in this specific case, it is not a normal question. You have some knowledge. Hey, teacher. Show us a sign. You evil and adulterous generation, you're not going to get a sign. Except from the prophet Jonah. We'll get there in a minute. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about this, this question. Like, show, give us a sign. Like, maybe you and I, we don't want to kill Jesus. I hope, I mean, if that's you today, like, we should talk. But but do we, do we ask Jesus for things? Do, hey, you know what? Sh prove to me that I can trust you. 
Why should I believe you? Because we've talked about this a lot in our, in our study through Matthew. Jesus has come and he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I'm the King. I'm going to bring about God's kingdom. And what everybody thinks that means is I'm going to come in and I'm going to destroy the Roman occupiers. And I'm going to set up Israel, the great nation, once again. And Jesus isn't really playing that game. He's not really doing those things. And I wonder sometimes when God doesn't do the things in my life that I expect him to do, how do I respond? Can you, can you just show me that you really love me? Can you, can you show me that I can trust you? Give me a sign. Because see, Jesus has a different set of priorities than the crowds, than the Pharisees, and even than the disciples sometimes. And we have the option when maybe we're in pain, maybe things hurt and we're like, God, where are you? Maybe when we're in sin, we're like, I want to do that thing and I don't think I should, but God, you know, if you don't want me to do that thing, cause a piano to fall from the sky to show me. Like we, we do play kind of those kind of games with God. We just don't trust And the question goes, it rolls all the way back up to this idea of the tree. It's like, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to pers- be a person that says, hey, God said that thing is bad for you. Let's, let's stay away from that because he loves you. Or are you going to just do your own thing? Where do you place your trust? So then verse 40 For Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. So this is pretty weird because of all the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures to say, I'm like that guy, Jonah is probably the worst. If you've, I don't know if you've, if you've never read the book of Jonah. It's short. It's only four chapters. Most of us know everything we know about Jonah from Sunday school. Jonah was a guy, and he got eaten by a fish and got spat out three days later. That's the extent of the story. It's much bigger than that, actually. That's only a small part. Um, Jonah's a jerk. Like, from the very beginning of his book, he's a xenophobe and a racist. He likes Jewish people, and he hates everybody else. And God comes to him because he's a prophet and he says, I want you to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, and I want you to preach against the city. And the Assyrians are God's enemy. They are ruthless in their conquering of the land and they've got vile sex practices and they worship foreign gods and they're just rotten to the core. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not doing that. And he gets on a boat and he goes to Spain or he tries to go to Spain. And he's on the water And there's this storm that kicks up and everybody in the boat's all like, why is there a storm? And Jonah's like, well, because I'm running from God. Oh, which God? The God that made heaven and earth and everything else. And the sailor's like, what? Why would you do that? And Jonah's all, it's going to be okay. Just throw me overboard and kill me and then the storm will stop. And and these guys who are much better people than Jonah are like, we're not doing that. We're not going to kill you. And he says, no, no, seriously, just do it. And then they they pray to God. They say, God, forgive us for killing this guy. And they throw him overboard. 
And God prepares this giant fish to eat him and swallow him. And then he starts writing poetry in chapter two about how he's sorry about screwing up God's plan and the fish spits him out after three days. And then the book actually starts. <laughs> and it says, God says, okay, now I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it. And so then he goes to the Assyrian capital and he goes throughout the city and he says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That's his sermon. Super short. And everybody believes him. From the king all the way down to the lowest of the low, everybody believes him. And they all go, oh man, we don't want to die. What do we need to do? And they repent. It says they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They turn from their ways and they worship Yahweh. And so God doesn't kill them. And at the end of the book, Jonah says, God, you should just kill me because this sucks. Like, I knew you were going to do that. You are so kind and generous and merciful. And I knew if I told these people about that, that they would repent and you would accept them. And I hate that. You should just kill me. And that's the end of the book. <laughs> like, it's, and Jesus is all like, I'm like Jonah. <laughs> like, and so everybody would be kind of like, well, let's explain that a little bit, Jesus. And so he does. He says, like Jonah was buried in the fish for three days, I'm going to be buried in the earth for three days. And Jesus is bringing up this idea that he's going to be killed. And the Pharisees, they know this. Like, they know, yeah, we want to kill you. And Jesus is all like, yeah, you're going to. You're going to kill me. And I'm going to be buried for three days. But then I'm going to rise from the dead. Yeah. And the men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is comparing himself to Jonah, not because he's like Jonah, but because he's completely different than Jonah. Jonah is buried in the fish because he's disobedient. Jesus is buried in the earth because he's obedient. Jonah is angered by God's grace. Jesus is the instrument of God's grace. Nineveh doesn't deserve grace. Nineveh is broken and evil and wicked. Jonah is angry because God is not supporting Jonah's nationalism. The people in Israel are going to turn on Jesus for the same reason. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, come in here and kick out the Romans and the Samaritans and all the other people that we hate and make us awesome. That was, that was their hope. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a kingdom that's going to be open for everyone to come into. They didn't like it, just like Jonah didn't like it. Nineveh, the people of Nineveh will be resurrected and they will stand in judgment against the people of Israel because someone greater than Jonah is among them. Jesus is walking among them. He's giving these amazing talks about the kingdom of God. He's healing people and restoring people. He's forgiving sin. And the people just won't see it. But in, in Nineveh, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. 
I believe you. I repent. That's all it took. It's five words in Hebrew that Jonah preached. He wasn't trying very hard. And the people believed and they turned. Are we people who are repentant? I love this quote. This is from Eugene Peterson from A Long Obedience in the Same Direction where he uh, defines repentance. It's kind of long, but he says, repentance is always and everywhere the first word in the Christian life. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong and supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and become his pilgrim on the path of peace. And this is what Jesus is calling the people to. This is what Jesus is constantly calling us to, to turn to stop going this way and to start going the other way. And we often get the idea that repentance is something that happens at the beginning. I want to become a Christian, so I am going to turn to Christ. And that's absolutely true. But it also happens every day after that. You ever go to the grocery store and you get one of the shopping carts where the wheel's stuck and you want to push it straight, but it's constantly like veering you into the aisles? You gotta like push it back and it does that. It's super frustrating. But that's what my heart is like. Like I'm pushing my cart after Jesus and it just wants to veer into the cereal aisle. And I have to, I have to redirect it and get it set back. I have, to, I have to recenter my life around my king over and over and over again. And this is something that these religious leaders who should know better are unwilling to do. And then we have the third judgment. Jesus is going to talk about learning in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba, this is a story from 1 Kings 10. She lives in Ethiopia, and she hears that Solomon, the king of Israel, is super, super smart, and he has this amazing kingdom. She's all like, I'm going to check this out, and, and she doesn't get in her private jet and fly up to Jerusalem. She gets probably in some sort of carriage thing with horses or some other, maybe giraffes. I don't know. They have giraffes in Ethiopia? Um. And she makes the trek, and it takes weeks to get there. She goes to great expense to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she asks, if you read in 1 Kings 10, she has all these questions for him. And they come from all over the place, from all these different areas. And Solomon answers all of her questions. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that 
our relationship with Christ is limited to this little bucket called church. Like we, we go to church on Sunday, maybe we're part of a community group midweek, and we, we like flip the switch in our, on our Jesus language and our Jesus life in those times. But the whole rest of life, that's not Jesus stuff, and so we don't really worry about that. I, I told you about a survey I found a couple of weeks ago where Christians usually trust their pastors, but they have a whole list of subjects they don't want their pastors to talk about, and it's pretty much like everything that has anything to do with your life. <laughs> and if you recall that week, we talked about politics. <laughs> but we don't follow Jesus, and I say this a lot, we don't follow Jesus just because we want to go to heaven when we die. Like, that's a big perk, right? Eternal life is awesome, that we get to spend the rest of forever as citizens of the kingdom. But if we're following Jesus, everything that we do right now has to do with who he is and what he's about and what he thinks and what he's doing in the world. And it's, it's I love this. We can go back to Genesis 3. There's one temptation in the Garden of Eden, and it's wisdom. And sometimes people think like, well, God wanted them to be stupid. And that's not it at all. They were called to rule the world on God's behalf. They were called to subdue the earth on God's behalf. They needed wisdom. They just didn't want to get it from God. They wanted to get it on their own. And so the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, comes to Solomon and has this whole litany of questions. Give me answers about all of these different subjects. And Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here. Everything that has to do with everything that you're involved in comes back to Jesus. How should I spend my work day? Where should I invest extra money if I have that, if that's a thing? Where should I invest that? Where should I go out to eat? Who should I befriend? Where, what should I watch on Netflix? How should I treat my children or my spouse or my friends? What's dating look like? There is no, who should I vote for? There is no area of the world that we live in that doesn't come back to Jesus and the wisdom that he has. And again, the, the people in Matthew 12, the Pharisees are not interested in Jesus' wisdom. They just, they're not interested in what he has to say. And he says, they will be condemned because of it, because they had the source of wisdom right there, and they didn't do anything about it. And this is, this is a heavy set of passages, particularly because Jesus is talking, talking to these religious leaders that should know better, that should be the first ones on their face to worship Him, that should be the, His closest disciples, because they've been in the Word, they've studied, they've learned, they have these conversations about God all the time, and they just miss it. And they refuse to trust. 
And they refused to repent. And they refused to learn from Jesus. And so the exhortation for us this morning is, is are, we, are we like the Pharisees? Are, are we, 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 always want, we always want the Pharisees to be the evil bad guys. Like, nobody's like the Pharisees. We hate them. But more often than not, I'm like the Pharisees. I say things that don't come from the Holy Spirit. They come from my flesh. I, I refuse to repent, or I don't even notice that I should. And I seek wisdom from sources that are completely contrary to Jesus. And so, this morning, let this text question you. We, are, we need to allow the Word of God to poke and prod at our hearts. Ask yourself the question, where am I? Who, what am I trusting in? Am I repentant? Am I, am I aware of the things to where I'm just veering off course? If, I'm a, if, I'm, if you're following Jesus, where are you veering off course and where do you need to correct? If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, do that today. Decide I'm tired of being my own God because it's not working and say, I'm going to follow Christ. And, and ask yourself, what am I learning from? What are the sources of my wisdom? Do I spend my time learning at the feet of Jesus or do I spend most of my time learning from my social media feed or cable news or whatever else informs our hearts and minds? Jesus starts to hint in this passage that, yeah, you're, you're going to kill me, but I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to beat death. And, and this is one of the things that we gather to do every Sunday is celebrate the Lord's table, which is this symbol of Jesus' death, right? We, we, we take the bread that he says, this is my body broken for you. And we take the cup. We have wine and juice per your conscience sake. And he says, this is my blood shed for you. And we, from where we sit in 2019, we look back to an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Our sins have been forgiven once and for all on the cross. And we look at today as we take the elements into ourselves and we remind ourselves that Jesus' Spirit empowers us. Jesus lives inside our hearts and we look forward to the day where Jesus says, the next time I eat this meal, it's going to be a big party when the kingdom comes in full. And we're all going to do it together. And so as the, the band comes up and we, we sing a little bit more, we remind each other of who God is and who we are in Christ. The communion table will be open. Feel free to come up and grab the bread and the cup and, and take that uh, on your own. But allow the text to search your heart. Ask yourself the questions. Who am I trusting in? Am I repenting? Who am I learning from? And if you find that it's not, it's not as much of Jesus as you'd like it to be, then it's really easy to course correct. 
come back. And I would encourage, I, I would encourage you, if, if you find that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning and saying, hey, you know what, things are not quite right. Get right with God, but then tell somebody about it. Tell somebody that you came with. Tell a friend. Say, hey, I really felt like God said this to me. Because what's going to happen is we're going to end the service and everybody's going to start chatting and the coffee's excellent. So everybody's going to go out and get the coffee. And then you're going to start making brunch plans and all of this is just going to fade into ether. But that's exactly what the enemy would like, right? That's exactly what um, would make him happy is if God's people heard from God this morning and then went, eh, whatever. Don't let that happen. If God speaks to you this morning and says, hey, there's some things that I want to get right. There's some things that we need to correct. Take that seriously and, and just do some work and deal with it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, God, Jesus' hard words. They are, they are good words. God, it's easy for us to condemn ourselves, but you do not condemn us in Christ. In Christ, we are made new. And yet, there's still this proclivity. There's still this sin this old man, Paul says, this sin nature that lives inside of us that wants to go the other direction, that wants to follow all manner of other things. And God, I, I just pray that this example of the Pharisees and their hard hearts would be a warning to us that we, with so much light, God, we have this book in front of us. We have the Spirit inside of us as your people that we would respond to your grace, that we would respond in faith. They would say, yeah, things, things aren't working out real well for me right now, and I, I, need, to, I need to fix that. And I need help to fix that. God, I pray that as we sing, that we would remind each other of who you are, that you love us more than we can comprehend that you're holy and good. And I pray as we uh, take the bread and the cup that we would just remember that our sins are forgiven. The salvation that you bought for us has already happened. We can be secure in that. God, help us to um, seek you, empower us, to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.